Welcome to Intermittent Signal. I'm David A. Westbrook. This is episode number nine, Smith Lake, part two. The music has been composed, produced, and written by Vince Parlato. Today's episode is chapter two of my experimental book, Smith Lake. Chapter one was my very first podcast, Points of Departure. Chapter two, Memory, Lake. What was I traveling to see on this odd pilgrimage without a shrine at its end? I remember the lake house set at the end of a gravel circular driveway in the middle of a generous lot, maybe four acres. I must have heard that number somewhere. The land sloped down from the house to the lake on almost three sides because the lot curved out into the lake. Large pine trees dominated a grassy yard. There was a bit of a proper lawn, but much of the grasses and wildflowers were wild and rarely mowed by a feral worn red machine called a bush hog. The grass often reached chest high in the summer. Mama and I picked the Queen Anne's lace that grew in wild profusion with their tough fibrous stems and wide greenish-white blooms. I recall the lake every time I see Queen Anne's lace. Why Queen Anne? Just as I cannot see hydrangea without thinking of Grandmama. Looking from the road, the lot was bordered on the right by a nearly impenetrable thicket. There were quail and many rabbits, which I tried to catch with box traps, which would not hurt the rabbits. I loved rabbits, not least because they did not work at all. The left side of our lot was bordered by an inlet of the lake. This inlet extended under the road via a pipe to finish in a pond that ran out into a weedy, froggy mess in the woods. For a brief instant, driving out to the main road, the lake's waters were on both sides. I thought that was cool. The lake of my boyhood, however, was actually a cove of Smith Lake itself, separated from the main lake by a causeway built up of heaped chunks of probably the sandstone that was everywhere. On top of the causeway, straight as an arrow, ran the state highway that led to Jasper. Where it went in the other direction, I knew not then and do not wish to know now. From the porch or the dock, one could very occasionally see cars coming out from or heading in to Jasper. Under the causeway was a culvert connecting our cove to the main lake. I remember concrete walls and dark shade with blazing light at the end. The culvert was just big enough for our motorboat which was blue and white and had an outboard motor, maybe a Johnson. The boat rarely worked, but I did learn to water ski from it. I suddenly recollect fishing in the middle of a bright hot day, stupid, no doubt to please me, with Granddaddy and Grandmama. She hated fishing and didn't have much love of boats or water either. We took the boat to the shade of the causeway and into the culvert, hoping something would bite to no avail. When the lake house was first built, it was the only house on the road, indeed on the entire cove, Granddaddy, perhaps with Grandmama's sole brother Joe, owned all the land around, although some might have backed up to land owned by other family members, and I suppose other people. Granddaddy sold off lots, but when I was a boy, there were only a handful of houses on the cove. The lake was still pretty wild, plied by beavers who had built their dams in dizzying succession at the far end. Family legend had it that fish would be trapped in the beaver ponds and grow to be enormous and ravenous, waiting to be caught. On at least one occasion, I hiked alone along the shore to the end of the cove and up into the ponds to try to catch one of these monsters, but mostly I got stuck in the mud. My father followed me at a distance respectful of my childish independence and watched me dig myself out with a Boy Scout hatchet with a cherry handle, a story he retold on occasion after I was old enough to suffer it. I wonder what happened to that hatchet, which was a fine tool I'd like to have now, mostly for the memories. I thought our cove a decent size, even though I knew the main lake was much bigger. 
I only saw the main lake from time to time, when the boat was working or from the road. Even as a child, again, not sure how old, I would swim across the cove with my parents. From my perspective, the cove was pretty big and I was just a strong swimmer. I may have been small enough to ride on Papa's back for some of those trips. On the other side of the lake from our house was a serious bass fisherman who had sonar on his boat. Sometimes we would tread water and talk and then swim back. My father's family, on both his father's and especially mother's side, had always owned land, in some cases, a lot of land. Papa often told tales of his boyhood walking the land with his pappy, his maternal grandfather, and Mammy's husband, and his cousins looking at timber and cows and such. Or sometimes Pappy would come back to Jasper from the farms with a truck loaded with watermelons, which would be sliced outside and the cousins would swarm around and only eat the hearts. Later, Granddaddy and Joe bought a lot of land, and other Westbrooks and Stevensons had even more, or in the case of the Stevenson girls, of which Grandmama was the eldest, their husbands owned land. As a boy, I was not sure who owned what, when, but land ownership ran deep and wide among my kin. Never occurred to me to ask whether such tales were not somewhat stretched. And if they were not stretched, why were the circumstances of so many of my relatives not exactly poor, but quite modest? What the hell happened? Such questions seem obvious now, but were not even questions for me as a boy. Money as such was almost never discussed, at least in my presence. It was bad manners, and Southerners traditionally looked at class in ways that did not necessarily reflect free cash flow largely because they often had so little cash flow, hence poor but proud as the slogan. Perhaps because I grew up in the South, I took no real interest in money until into my thirties, aristocratically believing it beneath me, and just now reminding me of my grandmother. By way of comeuppance, for reasons of both institutional need and social importance, my day job, such as it is, came to be organized by money, finance, corporations, central banking, political economy, and the like. Besides, we have children of our own, and America has become what it is, and so as an adult, I've been compelled to learn about money. What happened to the family's real estate interests in and around Jasper are essentially questions of money, its acquisition and its loss. But by the time I was old enough to think in such crass terms, we had long since left Alabama. Most of the principals had died, and it felt almost morbid to untangle the details, unseemly to get to the root of the matter. It is hardly worth effort now, particularly since I know the stories are not all as pretty as cousins eating the hearts of watermelon on a summer day. It is enough to say that landowning ran deep in the family and its sense of itself. Traditionally, the young men who went to West Point and the other service academies had a substantial amount of cash when they graduated. Cadets were commissioned in the Army upon matriculation and compensated accordingly but were not allowed to spend their earnings, which were held tax-free in escrow and paid out upon graduation. Many cadets bought fast cars. My father bought an engagement ring in Timberland. He did not secure the mineral rights, which might have made us filthy rich during the coal boom of the 70s. But the timber was worth something, and we, Papa may have held title, but he would be the first to say this was Westbrook land, sold it when we needed the money in the wake of Vietnam and Papa's resignation from the army. I confess, sitting here on 10 acres at over 10,000 feet in the Rockies, cold and clear and hard, back into a national forest, land ownership matters to me too. When we bought this place, Papa surprised me by writing, writing, to say how proud he was. Walking out the lake house drive, turning right along the road, crossing the inlet, up a hill to the main road, a hundred yards on the left, maybe a third of a mile all told, brought you to Abbott's. 
As a boy, Abbott's was important to me because they carried fishing gear. Hooks and sinkers and monofilament was about all I ever got. They also carried big fat worms and cardboard cartons, sort of like pint ice cream containers. Occasionally we would splurge and buy worms for fishing. Abbott's also had frozen sundries, popsicles, and ice cream bars and the like. My favorite was an orange push-up, a cylinder with a sort of stick that was pushed up, ejecting the sherbet into my waiting maw. We also sometimes went to Abbott's to buy cigarettes, not for smoking but to rip up, extracting the tobacco, from which we made a poultice that was good for yellow jacket stings, a common occurrence. That's all I remember, even though Abbott's must have had other things, milk and bread and probably gasoline, but no beer since Winston County was and is dry. The line between Walker and Winston counties ran through that corner. The lake house and Jasper were in Walker. Abbott's was in Winston. Crossing the highway, which as a child I was not allowed to do, and taking the first driveway on the right brought you to the house of Charles and Hazel Westbrook. Charles was granddaddy's younger brother and so a great uncle to me. Their house sat on a peninsula quite close to the causeway on the other side from our cove. A pontoon boat was docked below the house. The boat was said to have sufficient power to water ski. I can't recall skiing behind the pontoon boat, which would have been a hoot, the little tent roof flapping in the wind and the lawn furniture getting knocked about by the chop and the accelerations out on the main lake. I think we did cruise around a little. I also remember the grown-ups having drinks on the porch. Gin and tonics were common in my childhood in the summer, but I seem to recall something darker, perhaps rum or bourbon. And many, many years later, Grandmama's disapproval, apropos of nothing. Not without sin, I'm not in a position and have no desire to throw stones. My refusal to discuss drinking in any depth, suffice it to say there has been a lot of both drinking and depth, might seem to be a compromise. And this is as good a place as any to deal with yet another real problem for the writer, me. The last little Chautauqua addressed Apollo's concerns for truth and suspicion of sentiment generally and art especially. This little aside is for Dionysus, the sense that real truth lies somehow beneath that animates the romantic impulse. In Vino Veritas is a place to start. Under the dominant aesthetic of 20th century American writing, which I think of as romantic realism, the more I tell about what different traditions variously call sin, the untrammeled ego, or simply passion, especially illicit passion, the more authentic, and in that sense true, my text. If possible, there should be blood, which makes texts gritty, keeps them real, and so vital. That is, the real is understood to be generally ugly, and the ugly is understood to be generally true, so that one tells horror stories and thereby asserts the truth of one's accounts. Most of my life, I should point out, has not been ugly, has indeed been strikingly beautiful, which raises difficult problems, maybe more difficult. Be that as it may, although much great writing has been done under the banner of romantic realism, it has its dangers. Consider, for example, the late work of Cormac McCarthy, in which violence seems to become its own reward, and so oddly puerile. Surely in my family, as in most, there was sex, children, right? And its problems substance abuse, financial shenanigans, and maybe other crimes, combat, and perhaps, if I dig deep enough, other forms of killing. I presume racism. And don't inquiring minds want to know? In a variant of the same 19th century thinking, a historian may insist on ugly facts. Who did what to whom while harboring what dark motives in the name of historical truth? So, in refusing to articulate for publication, my failings, or even intimacies. 
and being even more circumspect when it comes to describing such all-too-human aspects of my extended family, I might be seen to give up truth for propriety or even kindness. Perhaps I am not sufficiently tough-minded to be a writer, much less a historian. At a very simple level, I am unwilling to speak ill of the dead, or even to turn them into my objects and have my way with them. To some extent, this is for the sake of survivors whom I love, and to some extent, it is a religious sentiment. That said, let me confess that I am not above debasing myself, not least on the altar of the authentic. I always have been, with the usual embarrassments I cringed to recall. But to what extent should I write about that? I hear the Dionysian in my bones, as it were, but you and I, gentle reader, are not that close. Moreover, and without false modesty, as I've aged, I've come to realize that many people are proud of me. Should I rub their noses in the fact that I, too, have feet of clay? Wouldn't that be a perversely Christian kind of vanity? Bracketing my own failings and my modest desire for respectability, however, I'd like to suggest a principled response to the idea that art, or authenticity, demands that I tell all about my weaknesses, or those of my kinfolk. I'm skeptical that Dionysian music suffices for a theory of art, even if art cannot do entirely without what we might bluntly call lust. Whatever the impressionists were seeking in brothels was far easier to find than it was to make the several great paintings that emerged from the experience. Maybe because I no longer dream that passion, lust, violence, authenticity suffice to imbue form with meaning, form is the problem. I have no desire to debase others, not even in the name of realism, which itself can never be achieved. It's a mirage. All of which is to say that I have stories that I will not tell here, or probably ever. Smith Lake does not romantically, naively, idealistically claim realism. It is not only the text's polite silences, however, that block our access to the truth. Things the text does manage to articulate pose more problems for representation. Matters of hearsay, hazy recollection, laziness, no doubt delusion and perhaps outright hallucination, wrapped up in rage, hope, and occasional moments of philosophical calm or aesthetic appreciation. You are the most untrustworthy narrator ever, truly said a friend. And by the way, if Smithlake isn't romantic realism, it is also none of those associated forms of representation that characterize our time including advertising, pornography, and those forms of self-presentation and indeed exposure that constitute social media. These are all familiar, interesting, and important for understanding the contemporary, but no more at issue here than history in any objective or even fair-minded sense is at issue. Had I wanted to write history, I would not have chosen the members of a small-town bourgeoisie in a minor state who happened to be my relatives, some of whom might get their feelings hurt. So, what does constitute this book's integrity? Or, to put the question more bluntly, why write this book? We left Alabama long ago. Almost nobody knows the stuff, in the sense of substance, stuff, of this text. My minor reputation is not based on anything that happened there, or whom I can are, and certainly not based on whatever their faults may have been. Am I indulging in a sort of historical fantasy, the quasi-fictional recreation of a small town where I can inherit the mantle of local nobility? As I hope you will come to see, this tale does not unfold along such Baroque lines, but there is something in the idea of nostalgia, a mythologizing of one's own past, and that might get us, me too, 
closer to understanding why I am writing this, why this lake is a place to begin certain reckonings. I may have read that Conrad said somewhere that life is a public thing. While this is surely an exaggeration, the public matters as a category for thought and action, and not least to constitute the citizen. One way to create identity is by comparison with others. We are blank because we are recognized by others as blank. A well-functioning class system would create identities, types, secure in their existence as such, and vis-a-vis -vis some conception of the public realm in which the individual moved. This is what T.S. Eliot wanted, but it wasn't then and certainly is not now the situation in the United States, notwithstanding our inequalities. Class, in short, is not so constitutional in America as one might expect. Indeed, titles of nobility are constitutionally prohibited. With staggering inequality but little class, we are left talking about prestige, or sometimes upscale, or the insistence on respect and even pride. We matter insofar as we are better situated than others and may be recognized as such. All this works for airline loyalty programs, about which more in due course, but mere inequality does not seem to be enough to constitute an ideal of the citizen or an identity. If our public lives are venal, based upon how much money or how many followers we have, what is left? How do we construct selves which we can respect, live with, as we must? One possibility, commonly realized, is that we fail to do so. That is, generally speaking, selves constructed in the United States are not to be relied upon, unstable, shallow, muddy water. If twilight falls upon this republic, it must also fall upon the citizens the republic comprises. But we must try to establish ourselves, even in difficult political circumstances. One possibility is to try and establish the self upon the wet sand of personal memory, which is not only uncertain, it is formed socially and especially through family, itself hardly the most stable of institutions in these United States. Hence nostalgia, the effort to mythologize one's own past, and this desire is part of what I am wrestling with on this journey. Nostalgia may not be enough for politics. Surely citizens need a sense of self beyond foggy memory of personal experience significant to us and our intimates, should we be lucky enough to have relatively stable relations. But of course, we'll always have football, as far as it goes. How do we begin to think about the race publica if the self, the, the citizen, is in question? Doesn't my own life as a global Mandarin raise this problem? At issue here is not improvement of the self as the purpose of philosophy, but simple structural integrity, holding it together so that one might be a citizen as opposed to a basket case, and one may be capable of fulfilling one's duties, not least to the polity, such as it endures. From this perspective, in which the self is achieved only by struggling against the forces of dissolution in the global environment, the fact that something is true does not mean it should be said, much less committed to writing. What actually happened in northwest Alabama in the decades after World War II, via eigentlich gewesen, Ranka and I'm showing off, but we shall return to the Germans, how it actually was, is not at issue. What is at issue is what can I make of it, knowing as little as I do, and knowing, for example, that my immediate family largely left Alabama, and the burden of my childhood outside our own neighborhood in Druid Hills was not west of Atlanta, but north in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Of course, I have much more than my time in Alabama on which to draw. The place was only a facet of my early childhood. Smith Lake is important to me, but there are other facets, other places, other ties that have made me who I am.
especially because it is isolated in time and space. However, the lake serves as a way to begin thinking more generally about what I can make of my scattered history, the travels and the failures, that would withstand presentation to others, publication, however I might feel about it. What can be constructed in principle, and for that matter expressed in words, because sadly I'm neither musician nor painter, can I write something true that can be presented to all concerned or their heirs? Identity and collectively culture require coercion, a Freudian thought, if not an American one. In this text, events and ideas have been suppressed as with a pillow. Dionysus has less power in the morning. While I will not lie, there are many things I will not say, already have not said. Writing is genteel brutality, here emphasizing the genteel. So, let me get back to presenting my childhood, and indeed myself, in the hope of saying something true and maybe even handsome, even while protecting the guilty, myself most of all, struggling to move forward, maybe even together. And such coming together is always a function of festivals, including the Super Bowl, so Dionysus ought to be happy. Pour the wine. On those occasions when the boat was working, we bought gasoline at Huey's Marina, a complex of docks and pumps not quite under a bridge constructed of blue-green steel girders that looms in my mind at about the scale of the Golden Gate Bridge. We would sometimes go to dinner at Huey's. I have no idea how many times we actually did this, but I suspect it was only a few. At least once, however, we went by boat, which I thought was beyond cool, and Cat evidently also remembers, so it must have happened. The docks at Huey's were lit at night, and small fish would come to the lights. Crappier are especially sensitive to light, and often fished at night, though I'm not quite sure of the legality of this. The small fish drew in big fish, gliding in and out of visibility in the green-gold water. Fishing was strictly prohibited, but just watching the fish was magic. It wasn't until many years later, watching tarpon lurking around a bar's jetty somewhere in the Florida Keys, on our honeymoon come to think of it, that I was so entranced with fish. Driving up to Huey's was pretty cool, too, Tom tried to remind me. I recall that the path from the parking lot featured dangerous snakes, rattlers, moccasins, and hutches. Cousin Joey confirmed this. There's nothing like a snake display to work up an appetite. Strangely, I don't remember this bit of southern gothic trivia, but I like it. Perfect. Maybe the snakes were before my time. What I do remember, and of a piece, is that the walls of the restaurant at Huey's were lined with local trophies, bass, both largemouth and smallmouth, perhaps a big trout, deer heads, maybe other wildlife, and lots of hornet's nests. Tables were wood, linens may have been red and white, and the place was too brightly lit, no doubt so that the trophies could be appreciated. The restaurant specialized in deep-fried catfish, and that was where I learned to eat hush puppies and maybe overly sweet strawberry pie. One of my major goals in going back to Smith Lake was to have catfish and hush puppies at Huey's. As a boy, I also heard much talk of going up to Coleman for those delicious orange rolls and silver dollar pancakes. I'm also not sure how many times we actually did this, or if I mainly remember the talk about doing it some morning that was not tomorrow. I also can't remember if the orange rolls were from the same place as the silver dollar pancakes, but I love the image of silver dollar pancakes. I also don't remember what the orange rolls actually tasted like. Years later, as I was thinking about this trip, I mentioned my vague recollections to Papa, who instantly told me I was thinking about the All State Cafe in Coleman. A quick internet search revealed that the orange rolls from the All Steak Cafe are indeed famous. Comments abound. 
my father's slight error was understandable. All steak is a strange name since the place served, and serves, many things besides steak, and is famous for orange rolls, not steak. All steak has existed forever in Coleman, albeit not always at the same address, with at least one move necessitated by a tornado. Coleman, too, became a destination for me. Apart from orange rolls, I had no real associations with Coleman. This is a bit odd. As a child, and given all the talk about arduous journeys in pursuit of orange rolls, I had thought that Coleman was distant, perhaps near the border with Tennessee. In fact, however, Coleman is just up the road from Jasper, the nearest town of any size. Much later, I heard that race relations in Coleman had been truly horrible, of the you-don't-want-to-be-black-after-sundown-in-this-town sort. If true, and I'm speculating, this bespeaks a certain kind of racism only available or attractive to what was brutally called trash. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that racism in the American South, or more elsewhere for that matter, was or is restricted to the lower classes. I'm saying that racism there and then was strongly inflected by class. Better-heeled folks and towns, like Jasper, needed and often appreciated their black workers, servants, neighbors who were there after sundown. And there was a question of manners. Well-bred people expressed themselves in certain ways and not in others. Even trash was not actually said so much as implied, or sometimes more kind phrases were used, salt of the earth, or no better than she or he ought to be. So perhaps Coleman was just too redneck for frequent visits. As I said, this is speculation, an adult speculation at that. As a boy, I recall almost no black people at the lake or in Jasper, unlike at home in Atlanta, even in Druid Hills. In my recollection, at least, the countryside was quite agricultural. Forests were interspersed with sweeping pastures and standing corn, perhaps other crops. Some of the pastures were owned by relatives, although I think the actual cattle belonged to farmers who leased our land. I also remember long, low chicken houses, though I don't think our family owned any. I was told that the Vietnamese were known for being good at sexing chicks, that is, sorting the males from the females. Sexing a young chick is both difficult and commercially important, or at least it was, and so these were good jobs. I never saw it done, though. Alabama had long been coal country. Birmingham was a steel town, and I remember seeing the giant plants on our way to the lake from Atlanta. An old joke runs, if you're going to hell, you have to change planes in Atlanta. Underneath the joke was a bitterness. Atlanta was modern money and law and services, symbolized by its enormous airport. And Birmingham was industrial, dirty, being left behind. But at the lake, at least during my early childhood, all that seemed quite far away. In time, things changed. Perhaps it was simply progress, perhaps spurred by the OPEC embargo and the oil crisis of the mid-70s, but strip mining came to the lake. Strip mining came not just to Smith Lake, but to the lake house itself. We could hear the rumble of the machinery, and we hiked across the road from the house, through the woods where we sometimes cut small pines for Christmas trees, at least once using a serrated kitchen knife, quite suddenly coming upon a huge strip mine, the great machines ripping the earth apart. The violence of it all, the killing and the ruin, seemed like the end of the world for me as a young environmentalist. There was a great deal of worry about runoff ruining the lake. About that time, and partially for those reasons, we left, and for many years thereafter I wondered how bad the damage was, whether that idyllic landscape was now some sort of denuded moonscape like Copper Hill, Tennessee. Maybe on account of the strip mining and the belief that man-made lakes were doomed to silt up anyway, or so Grandmama said to me later, the lake house was sold, even though Grandmama and Granddaddy did not really need the money. 
but they had never used it much. They built it for their children and to give themselves a place to stay when they were visiting family in Jasper. A few years afterward, with considerable help from my grandparents, we bought a house in Highlands, North Carolina, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, in fact, the highest incorporated town east of the Mississippi. A few years after that, we bought a gentleman's farm, also in Highlands, a beautiful property on the Eastern Continental Divide, which my parents own to this day. Whatever the precise constellation of reasons, my nuclear family pivoted to the north, and much of my youth, when I was not at school in Druid Hills, was spent in Appalachia. Here again, as a boy, it never occurred to me to ask, what happened? Why had they decamped from Alabama so decisively? Years later, Grandmama would make vague and negative allusions to land deals. Only quite recently did I get some sense of the depths of the falling out among brothers and sisters, in-laws, accusations of excessive gambling, drinking, and cheating, and ultimately the dissolution of partnerships. My sense of the timing, to say nothing of causality, remains confused at best. I think many of the family's difficulties preceded the actual sale of the lake house by years, and my father recently told me that I had it all wrong. I'm sure it's less than all wrong, but I'm also sure it's not correct. Here again, I have no desire to untangle the details, much less to assign blame, and especially not for publication. This is not a history, and as I've said, these things were so far from my awareness as to form no part of my memories, which, perhaps, is also part of the point. This has been Smith Lake, Part 2, on Intermittent Signal. Music written, performed, and produced by Vince Perlato. I'm David A. Westbrook. Until next time, be well. Thank you.